So Patty, we had a fantastic episode today. Sebastian is always such a pleasure to have him from Arkham talking about um, retaining merchant accounts. Yes, yes. Which on the surface sounds a little boring, but imagine if somebody could literally give you a spreadsheet and said, here are all the merchants that are probably going to cancel in over the next 12 months. Right. You could direct resources. I mean, that is literally what they're doing. What a savings, you know, of time, of energy, of money. And I really love the way, I think Sebastian is so good at explaining this. I mean, obviously it took a, you know, quite a bit of brain power to come up with what he came up with, the algorithms and so forth. But, you know, I've talked to Sebastian numerous times over the, over the last couple of years and the more this gets refined, you know, the more yeah. obvious it seems to me. Yeah, they definitely know what they're doing over there. So it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah. exciting. Um, and the questions from the field, I'm going to leave you in suspense, <clears throat> other than to say that I actually talked to a real agent. So I've been trying to do this more and more, uh, mm-hmm. where I actually bring in a, a separate Zoom call that I did with an actual agent that had a question for the field. So that's and what we're going to do today. Respond. And yes. uh, my, my, uh, my report is on tokenization. You know, it's one of those things that it's a word we throw around a lot, but um you know, we get a little bit more detail of what it means and and what's going on um, in in terms of card tokenization these days. So, our um, this episode as is sponsored by NMI NMI.com. And uh, James, what do you say we get going? Let's start our interview, and then uh, of course in the Insiders Report we also get to talk about NMI. So you're going to want to stick around for that as well. I think it'll help you to understand a little more what a gateway does and yeah. the tokenization. I thought that was great. <clears throat> so with that being said, let's start our interview with Sebastian. Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, Patty and I are here today with Sebastian, who is the CEO and founder of Arkham Partners. How are you doing today, Sebastian? Pretty good, James. Pretty good. It's great to be back. Nice yeah. to have you back. So let's see, Sebastian, it's been a little while since we had you on the podcast. And so for those that maybe missed the last one, give us a little bit of an introduction of who you are and kind of your journey in the industry. And then tell us Arkham Partners, like what is that? What do you guys do? And, and maybe uh, share a little update with us if you would. Absolutely, absolutely. So in short, uh, we ultimately help processors, acquirers, ISOs, anybody who pretty much focuses on acquiring merchants uh, to better retain those accounts by analyzing who will be churning, um, why are those accounts churning, and provided those insights many times uh, 12 months in advance so our clients can proactively engage those customers, retain them for longer, solve problems, and increase customer lifetime value. Love it. That's great. And and um. How's it going? So you've been doing this for a little while. I mean, are you seeing some success? What kind of success are you seeing? Give us a little update on kind of where Arkham Partners is at and it's, and it's journey. I know it's a, a startup, so kind of give us, that's an exciting thing in our industry. So tell us a little bit about kind of the, where you're at in the journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I think last time we spoke, we were still for the most part operating out of Excel spreadsheets. So we would send up a list of clients. Right. Hey, these are the merchants who are likely to churn. Uh, this is why they're churning. This is some information about them in terms of industry code, processing volume, revenue, et cetera. Uh, but now we kind of switched that up. You know, we're, we, I, I think I mentioned to you, we, we did a small raise not too long ago. And for that primarily was to enhance our product offering. Um, so now we actually, you know, as, as, uh, as any tech firm, we wouldn't really be a technology company if we didn't have a fancy dashboard with some charts. Uh, right. So we decided to really productize our algorithm, uh, deliver that to the client in a way that is very intuitive, very simple, not too many bells and whistles, uh, strictly focusing on what we do best. And that is helping you identify merchants who are going to be churning your portfolio. Why are they churning? And some additional characteristics about them. So you know specifically uh, what solution to offer them when contacting that particular account. Yeah. 
Love it. Okay. All right. So, so I want to start by kind of zooming out a little bit and talking about the scope and like how big of a problem attrition is for the acquirer ISO community. Um, <clears throat> frankly, this is one of those problems that's always uh, baffled me a little bit as far as why our industry does not seem to care about it very much. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the deal is with that. I mean, I know they're starting to see the light with company like yours, you know, making a, a dent. So talk to our, our audience about this. I mean, why should they care about attrition? How big of a deal is it? You know, how big of a problem is this that needs to be solved? Um, let, let's first start with, you know, how big is this problem? You know, and I, you know, talking to investors, this is what we refer as total addressable market, right? Um, and the and, and and the TAM for this particular problem it's huge. You know, let's let's kind of give you a top-down approach or or analysis for that. You know, there's roughly seven billion seven trillion dollars in credit card and debit volume going on every single year. Uh, out of that, let's be conservative. Roughly 10% of that uh, amount is expected to churn every single year. So we're looking at 700 billion dollars at risk every single year. Uh, throw on top of that, let's add you know one percent in that revenue. After we paid, after we accounted for interchange fees, network fees, et cetera. So we're looking roughly about $7 billion in net revenue that are being lost every single year in our industry. And granted, this is not necessarily accounts that are leaving and just never coming back. No, these are accounts that for the most part are switching over to another processor. Right. Um, and now with the rise of companies like Toast, Square, they're switching over. And with the additional value out of these companies or ISV providers, um, uh, provide it. It really becomes a matter of are they really coming back in circulation to the ecosystem of the actual traditional choir, etc. And, and I don't know the answer to that, but I would say uh, more and more every year, some of that percentage that is churning and is going to these accounts, it's not coming back to be acquired right. by a traditional ISO and acquire. Um, so I would say, you know, this is very problematic in terms of, you know, why is it important? Uh, well, churn is churn is it's it's counterintuitive when it comes to growth, right? So you want to grow your portfolio. Uh, this is an industry that we spend a lot of money when it comes to acquiring a merchant, whether that's with free terminals or bonuses that we give up front to the agents for closing an account. I mean, for opening an account. Um, and 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 to be honest, very few people have a sense of what is the true cost of acquiring a merchant, mm -hmm. and spending a lot of this money in the front end and completely neglecting the account uh, once that account has been boarded. I think it's you know, problematic not only for ISOs, but as an industry as a whole, since yeah. you know, at, at the end of the day, we, you know, we, we come to realize that, hey, uh, it's so much cheaper to retain an account than it is to go out there and acquire a new one. Sure. Yeah, one of the things I love about what you're doing, Sebastian, is I like that, <clears throat> excuse me, you're, you're kind of quantifying this in a, in a unique way, meaning, you know, the reason people put a lot of money into the acquisition is that there's this kind of clear and obvious thing. You know, I spend this money, I, I acquire this. these accounts. Right. Well, with attrition, it's a little more subjective, or at least it has been. And so it's kind of like, well, I don't know who's going to cancel. So how am I going to effectively put money into this? Whereas you're kind of saying, hey, here's the list of 100, 1,000, 10,000, depending on how big, you know, here's a list of merchants that are probably going to cancel. So now you can kind of, focus your resources and say, okay, well, wait a minute. If I know these are the thousand accounts that are going to cancel, how much would I pay to keep those accounts? And then they can uh, allocate resources, you know, appropriately for that. So the million dollar question, which I know is obviously not one that you can really answer per se on a podcast, but I mean, broad, broadly speaking, broad trends, what is causing the attrition for ISOs and acquirers? You know, are there some significant trends that you've seen or some insights that you could share along those lines of just kind of now that you've had a lot more data to look at? 
Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, Patty actually did a phenomenal article on this on the green sheet, specifically highlighting, yeah, <laughs> uh, specifically highlighting the five main components that we focus on when it comes to uh, flagging a merchant at risk of churn. Uh, and a lot of, you know, you talk to a lot of people, a lot of folks always think it goes back to pricing, 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 you know, uh, but, but that's a huge misconception because we, we see in the data all the time that uh, merchants are willing to switch over to uh, uh, and pay higher in fees if that means a better service. If that means that on a Saturday when my POS goes down, um, I can rely on calling someone to answer the phone and that problem will be solved. So for the most part, we think that the main, you know, and again, the main driver behind churn that we're seeing, it's agents, you know, agent offering, getting a better split from residuals from one company and sending those accounts over to another uh, to another acquirer. Again, this is just part of business. And I think this is uh, going back to your, your last point. Uh, this is the reason why I think it's such a uh, persistent problem in the industry, because we consider it as, hey, hey this, is, this is just the cost of doing business. If I'm acquiring accounts, accounts are going to churn. Uh, but we're hoping to change that dynamic and, and, and sort of perception a bit and say, actually, you don't have to take attrition as given. You, there's actual levers that you can pull and technology you can leverage in order to better solve this problem. Um, so going, you know, going down the list, agent is the main reason, main driver normally we see when it comes to driving attrition. Uh, the next one will be product. And this is, you know, does my terminal, is, it, it, does it have NFC capability? Uh, is it tap and go? Uh, does it do any type of, does it bring any type of operational efficiency for my business if I'm using it? So I'll be product related. Service related is how many times am I calling a month and am I, am I problems being solved once I'm calling customer service? So we got agent, product, service. Of course, pricing is a big driver as well, uh, but not the main one I would want to stress. And last but not least, we have information about the zip code where these merchants are located. So many times we look at the economic uh, conditions for that specific zip code as to as to identify whether this merchant is likely to churn because of economic reasons. Just because we're seeing a recession in Atlanta, that does not mean that a place like Miami is also slowing down. It could be very localized. So that's kind of how we break down churn in terms of external drivers and internal drivers, external drivers being something like the economy, internal drivers being things like pricing, agent, product, and service. So. So tell me, uh, Sebastian, you know, why does our industry need a company like Arkham? Why can't, you know, ISOs and acquirers be doing them, this themselves? Uh, you know, what are you doing that they either are not or cannot be doing in this area? Um, I would say that they could be doing something about it, you know, okay. but again, it's, it's also very expensive. Uh, predicting okay. churn is a very complicated problem you know we've been working at a lot this, of computing uh, power you mean by complicated or more it, it's more even human capital associated okay. with it again you know it's not it's not just ask a, the right questions uh, right 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 it, and having the right people to answer those questions and dabble into the data it's not like hey let me let me hire two economists to come and build me a churn model and, and figure this problem out no those economists have never dabbled with payments data it becomes very difficult for them to really see how the dynamics of pricing, network fees, uh, more fixed fees like PCI compliance come into play when it comes to actually predicting churn. Um, so, so, I, so I go about and say, uh, I would say to ISOs, I mean, uh, this is very expensive. They can sure try to hire three, four data scientists to try to hammer this problem out. But does that guarantee uh, a possible solution to the problem? Absolutely not. 
You know, there's a lot of risk associated with going ahead and implementing a new problem, a, a new project or a new solution. Um, we have been working this, you know, from the payments industry all the way to, you know, uh, the newspaper or publication industry where essentially me and my co-founder got our first jobs out of, right? So we have been exposed to this problem going back, you know, six, seven years already where we have really studied it, analyzed it, and tested many of the many of the new methodologies that we have been able to build. A lot of them came pure sheer luck to try new things and having some type of feedback from the client to make sure that, hey, actually, is this aligned with a product that um, you would be willing to buy to solve your churn problems or is it or are we missing something? And that's kind of where the ability or or I would say the advantage of being a startup is where, you know, our clients, especially the early days or very early pilots, they were very willing to, hey, let's try new things. If it doesn't work, sure, let's go back to the drawing board. Send us a new list. We'll compare this new list. And we did this time and time again. I mean, in fact, you know, all of last year was spent around really honing in this methodology so we can ensure that, hey, whatever portfolio we deploy this to, whether it's a 5,000 uh, 5, merchant retail ISO or is it a 300,000 merchant super ISO, we can expect a certain level of results. Um, and ultimately, you know, those results ultimately drive lower churn. And at the end of the day, you know, more money for the ISO, more money down the drain, uh, I mean, down the, uh, how do you call that? Um, down the funnel to the uh, to the agent making more in residuals. Sure, but this sure. is something that a problem that, you know, it's not just an ISO problem. It's also trickles down all the way to the agent. If you think sure. about it, you know, if you're an agent and some ISO offers you, you know, a 90% split on your residuals, but the churn rate is closer to, you know, 20, 30%. Is that any better from someone offer you 80% split on their residuals, yet their retention rate is closer to 95%? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that even the agent ought to consider when it comes to where are they placing their accounts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so that that that's really cool because what you're really saying is is it's it's an issue of of numbers as well as applicability, right? I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not just crunching the numbers is, right. hey, are you, are you, do you have knowledge in the industry where you can even crunch these numbers and provide something that is useful? Right. Um, to, to, to give you an idea about that, I mean, when I first got started, I would send, I would be, our models would be very accurate. But, but guess what? Um, a lot of those merchants that we initially flagged will churn in the following month. Well, we would go back to the clients and say, hey, is this good enough for you? And say, listen, many times we experience a data delay where we don't get to see our data for you know, 30 days after what has already occurred. Um, therefore, we have to work a way out to be able to push that signal later into time right. so that our clients had enough time to proactively engage those accounts, right. rebuild that relationship and retain that account for longer. Right. So it's, it's sort of an opportunity cost issue at that point. Um, so let's say if let's say you know I'm an ISO or a large processing company. I'm using Arkham. Um, what do I do once once you get this information? You know, on you know accounts that are likely to to cancel. You know, obviously I can't just go flip flip a button and you know and attrition goes away. What do, what do I as an ISO need to do with this information? And and, and sort of ex- take that to one step further too, if you don't mind, Sebastian. And, it would seem to me that we're talking really about some changes our industry needs to make in order to minimize attrition that these individuals 
you know, the individual ISO is doing with that information you give them. There's sort of a, a bigger picture here, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and if you think about it, you know, what are some things that, you know, an ISO can do once we provide them this insights? It's, you know, we, we like to break this down into uh, two types of potential strategies. Ones are like soft touches, for example, you know, me calling you, hey, Patty, how are you? I'm your merchant acquirer. Um, I know these are tough recessionary times ahead. I'm here to help you. Is there anything in particular that I can be useful to you? Mm -hmm. That's a soft touch. Right. Uh, if it's a small account, you know, you can probably get away with just sending an email, letting them know, hey, Patty, I am here for you. I'm your acquirer. There's anything I can do to potentially help you navigate these tough times. Uh, know that we, you can rely on us. That's a soft touch. Costs very little. You know, a lot of the times you already have retention managers on the team that can essentially deploy these, uh, these soft touch strategies. Um, hard of touch strategies, this will be maybe geared towards bigger accounts, accounts where margin is higher. Um, accounts that require maybe more a um, a more personal touch, and this could be something as uh, as simple as, hey, I know that you're a restaurant processing, you know, a million dollars in sales volume every single month. You're big enough where it makes sense to give you a free POS that helps you with your operational um, efficiencies to make sure that mm -hmm. you can uh, have your um, you can your employees can clock in, can clock out, table management, etc., so that we can really solve some of the issues that may be present in that specific merchant, right? So these are obviously harder touches, which recommend, which entail higher fee or a higher expense, right, to deploy. But at the end of the day, you know, when you align sort of these big accounts, these merchant accounts are processing significant amount of volume, you know, what, what would you pay to keep that account? And what are you willing to provide in the front end, you know, whether that's a price reduction or a new free terminal, what are you willing to do in order to actually retain that account not just for 12 more months, you know, how about for an additional 24 months and 36 months? That's where we really get to see sort of the dividends of this type of strategy being played out, where the customer lifetime value increases so significant that it almost pays for itself after a couple of months or, you know, mm -hmm. six months of actually having deployed that proactive retention strategy. So what so, you're saying is, is that they need to be more proactive, whether or not they're using Arkham or something else. And I think that James and I have talked about this a lot. You know, there isn't necessarily that proactive strategy towards retention. And what, what you're saying, I believe, is that Arkham sort of helps direct the industry um, that way. Absolutely, Patty. And, and one of the things that, you know, I, I want to stress as well is, uh, you know, again, at the end of the day, uh, we recently partnered up with PopCode. So, you know, any merchants that we flag, um, who are at risk of churning, we know why they're churning. Uh, now pop codes can go ahead and deploy messages directly at the point of sale terminal so that though that particular merchant can see, for example, hey, uh, you, uh, you qualify for a reduction in your fees. Click here or scan this QR code to learn more. This is engaging the customer sure. directly at the front lines at their store at their POS terminal, right? So the ability to be proactive, again, you know, if you don't have to use us by any means, but what you have to realize is that we're in an industry where resources are relatively scarce. You know, if you have a team, an ISO with, you know, 50,000 merchants, for example, you more likely have close to, you know, four to six retention managers. Now, yeah. having six retention managers focus on 50,000 accounts, that's a, that's, a, that's, that's, a big that's, a big, that's a big job. I wouldn't want to have, to be honest with you. Yeah. Right. But what yeah. if we could leverage technology to focus on those accounts that need our attention the most? 
not every account. Or so, right. The yeah. 500 or so that will right. be churning if nothing is done. That's where the resources and the time of these six retention managers ought to be spent, not contacting every single account. Some merchants don't want to hear from their providers and other accounts need that ability to really walk them through troubles, any difficulties with setup or perhaps training. These sure. are all things to consider when it comes to retaining an account. And again, you know, all we do is simply point you to where you should be spending your resources. And at the end of the day, work with you to ensure that the right message is deployed for those accounts and that you're doing everything you can do in order to keep them. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing that's interesting to point out is, I mean, there is so much variation right now in the payments industry as far as you say, well, we're an ISO. I, like, I don't even know what that means anymore. Does that mean you, are you going after restaurants with point of sale? Are you selling standalone terminals with dual pricing or cash discounting? Are you selling B2B merchants on B2B cardics? Like, right. And so I think what's interesting is without the data, you know, like I love the example you gave Sebastian about uh, providing a free point of sale system to the restaurant that you know is likely to attract. Unless that ISO has fairly concrete data that says this account is likely to cancel, they are never, ever going to make that investment. Right. Right. You're not going to, you're not going to like blanket and say, I've got a great idea for our company. Let's reach out to all of our restaurants and offer them a free point of sale, even though they're already processing with us. Mm -hmm. No, you just lost, you know, $10 million, right? Like depending on how large your company is, you're not going to do that. But if you say, well, here are the 300 that we know for sure are likely to cancel over the next 12 months. Is it worth a free point of sale system to retain? Yes. Now we reach out and offer it, right? So I think what you're doing, uh, you know, Sebastian, is so interesting because you're giving that data. Without that data, you just, you can't do those strategies. It's right. not, it's not practical. It's just not, you know. You're, you're guessing, you're, you're guessing, you know, and it's no different from, you know, again, uh, when you're considering, again, it's not free POSs to everyone who we identify to be at risk. No, it's maybe everyone who processes at least $50,000 per right. month, who right? It's this particular make, MCC code or whatever. Right, exactly. Like we can be very surgical when it comes to deploying these type of strategies into who, uh, right. which is again, you know, it, it's no longer a blanketed approach. Hey, free, free terminals for everyone. No, right. although this is kind of where our industry is moving, but it's more of like who deserves, it's not even who deserves, who do I want to spend the additional funds on to make right. that investment on my client so I can ensure that he will stick around with me for another 24 months in the long run. Again, yeah, get, that, that is very, exactly. That is very valuable. I'd say, yes. you know, not only for our industry, but, you know, for any industry in general that is dealing with churn. Yeah. Love it. So um, we already kind of touched on this, but I want to just um, isolate this question because, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the churn is going to, you know, toast or square or stripe or whatever. Um, and there's so many now of, you know, these companies that are competitors to the traditional legacy kind of ISO um, agent model. You know, what I have seen of some data, uh, just from a little bit of, there's some public data out there with Toast and with Square and others. It does seem like their attrition seems to be like significantly lower. I was actually just yesterday talking to a really, really large um, processing company that everybody would know. And, uh, you know, their attrition is 20% annually. Um it seems like Toast and, and Square are like below 10% as a general rule. Um, why is that? What, would you have any yeah. insights of, of broadly, like what should our industry be doing broadly? And, you know, why is there this kind of disparity between uh, the two models? Um, I, I, if I were to boil it down, um, I think, again, there, there is a lot of private equity money in our industry, right? A, a lot of 
ISOs out there that that are backed by PE farms. Um, you have to understand a lot of these, you know, squares, toast, stripes, they don't think like payments companies. They don't act like payments companies. These are tech firms. These right. are tech companies that leverage technology to do their job better. You know, uh, the valuations they have, the resources they have, uh, these are not the resources that an ISO has access to, right? Um, it's not like they can just go back to their VC and say, hey, I need an extra 50 mil so I can work on bringing, you know, more proactive retention solutions. Absolutely not. These guys have already the resources. They have the team of data scientists working on these problems. And many times, you know, someone like Square is proactively reaching out to their merchants and saying, hey, I noticed your cash flows have declined in the last three months. Um, do you need a loan? Before the merchant even thinks about it. So again, let, let me just clarify. The stripes, the squares, the toast, they are doing what we're describing right now. Right. It's not this is like ahead, oh, this is the future of retention. This is only going to be available for a very few in the next five years. No, this is today. And these players are currently actively deploying and using data to improve the customer experience. I mean, this is a standard when it comes to tech firms, right? right. How do we how do we get better better data science? And I think with you know, let's let's Square is kind of the, the big elephant in the room. Square not only has data about processing information, but they also have information coming in at the point of sale. Sure. So this is information that is usually available at, you know, let's say at a TMS, terminal management system, that many ISOs don't have access to. So now couple the, the, the additional resources with the additional data and the willingness to do something about the churn numbers, what we have is essentially a lower attrition rate, a stickier product, and an ability to proactively engage customers before they're out the door and before they decide to go and shop around for other solution providers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's so important to understand that, you know, no matter how smart you are, your decision cannot possibly be better than the data that you have available to you. Right. And so it's like, well, so you know, it's, it, we're not saying the people at Square are smarter necessarily, although they do hire a lot of smart people, but we're not saying that people at Square are smarter than the people at the average ISO. What we're saying is that when they sit down to make a decision about the direction they want to go from a technology perspective, the direction they want to go from a retention strategy, they're able to leverage massive amounts of data and data scientists and people like you employ Sebastian, and they have these people in-house and they're able to leverage all of that with this massive amount of data. So they're just able to make decisions that are data-driven where a lot of times the ISOs are guessing or even worse, not even guessing because they just say, you know, that like you, I love the way you described it earlier. It's like, well, attrition is attrition. It happens. <laughs> cost of doing business. What are we going to do about it? And it's like, well, yeah, but actually there is something you can do about it. You just don't have the information. And I think a lot of them need to wake up to the fact that, you know, it's not like you're going to be able to provide them with a spreadsheet that says like, this is the definitive list of every merchant that's going to cancel in the next 12 right. months if you don't do something, but there's probabilities. And so you could say, right, right here's a list of people that are prob- highly likely, highly probable. So um, so here's my, my last question. So this is a really tough one to answer. And, uh, you know, you may have to go in general terms here, but I'm just kind of curious. So let's take a, a retail ISO. They've got, you know, maybe 5,000 mids. Um, if they were to implement, you know, what you have to provide, your software, your algorithms, et cetera, and then they were to take your advice and actually do something about it, right? Um, what kind of an impact would that have on the company, whether you want to go financially or whatever? I mean, EBITDA, you know, I don't know, like however you want to describe it. Like, 
like why you give give us the pitch of like what's the impact going to be on this kind of really pretty small retail ISO with 5,000 mids? Like what are they going to see as a result of doing this? And then our audience can obviously extrapolate from there if they're a lot larger. Or, or to put it this way, the happiness portion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Show me the money, basically. Right, right? exactly. exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, let, let's take this very, you know, excellent question, James. Uh, let, let's take this a little high level, you know, um, yeah. And ISO, we actually did a case study on a precisely a retail ISO, roughly with about 5,000 mids or so. So I, I do have oh, some numbers on okay. top of my head. Cool. Okay. Um, but you can imagine an ISO with about 5,000 mids, they're processing roughly about, let's say, a billion dollars in sales right. volume every year, just to keep it conservative. Right. Um, out of that billion dollars, 10% of that, again, conservative, 10% volume churn. So mm -hmm. we're looking at uh, roughly about a hundred million dollars in sales volume guaranteed to go out the door every single year right now let's take that a step further and say okay roughly one percent one percent of that is going to be net revenue for me for my shop after i pay interchange network fees etc right so we're looking at roughly a one million dollar in net revenue problem that i'm not dealing with every single year right uh, arkham can actually identify Many times with good data, you know, that's the big caveat. Right. You know, if we have transactional information, we have surveys or ticket information, and we have product information, we can on average capture up to 50% of that at-risk volume. So we're looking at roughly half a million dollars in savings when we charge that particular ISO five bucks per merchant per year. That's a $25,000 investment for the year, and they have the potential to save up to half a million dollars in net revenue. Nice I mean, payback. you know, it would be a very nice payback, right? And that again entails the ISO actually reaching out to the customer, proactively engaging that customer, but it first begins with focusing on who requires this additional touch point, who requires this additional um, service, this additional product offering. And in many times, you can actually use this up to cross-sell on new opportunities and cross-sell on new solutions that maybe the merchant is unaware of. So for example, if we flag an account and this is, happens to be a tire shop that is doing you know, $200,000 in sales volume a month uh, and we identify that he's at risk of churning because of economic reasons, well, wouldn't that be an easy no-brainer to put them into surcharge and cash discount or dual pricing, for example? Mm -hmm. Now you all of a sudden alleviate the burden of credit card processing fees for the for the for the merchant. Right. You help them by providing an additional solution that it's at your disposal. Right. Maybe the merchant was unaware of that, and now you all of a sudden have changed the dynamic from having a at-risk customer to now having a customer, a, a loyal customer who's unwilling to switch because you were there for him and his stuff, his times. Yeah, I think that's the real value of what we provide. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think that's great. I think it's so interesting to me that the you're talking about a you know what a twenty to one uh, return on investment year one with a and you know that's for a really small retail ISO. Take that, extrapolate that same return on investment for the company with three hundred thousand mids, and it starts to be really really interesting. So, um, okay, so last thing here before we let you go, Sebastian, this has been so interesting, so insightful. I always love talking with you, as you know. Um, tell us uh, where people can go to learn more. And, and give a little bit more specificity. I don't, obviously, you don't want the individual agent reaching out. Like, who do you want to reach out to you and, and where should they go to learn more? Uh, absolutely. So as long as, um, as long as there is roughly about, you know, 5,000 merchants, that's usually our sweet spot, 5,000 merchants and above. 
Uh, but that point is a more mature ISO where, you know, sure. data collection is a priority. Um, because again, without data, we're, we're as good as the next person guessing. Um, so our value is derived from the data that we have access to. So right. you're, normally ISOs with around 5,000 mids who focus in the card present uh, space, restaurant, retail, brick and mortar, uh, these tend to be higher, um, higher churn sort of verticals. And that's pretty much where we're primarily focused around. Um, in terms of reaching out, you know, I'm Sebastian Builes on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there sometimes. Um, we're actually going through a rebrand. So we'll be dropping the partners. Instead of ArkhamPartners.com, we'll be Arkham.ai. We can visit us there, book a demo if you'd like to learn more or leave a message. Uh, we're very, very, you know, we go to all the shows. We try to be there uh, and make sure that, you know, we're pretty accessible for the most part. So if there's any question at all, even if it's just something like, hey, what are... What are some things that we ought to do in order to reduce churn? And you're not our client. I mean, reach out. This is all we do. We love talking about churn, ways to mitigate churn, and how to leverage data in order to bring better business decisions. Um, this is, you know, we hope to bring some some value to the industry, whether or not you're a client or not. Awesome. And uh, just to, just so for folks that may not be watching and are listening, it's Sebastian Buies, B-U-I. L E S. That's your correct. LinkedIn, correct? Okay. That is that is my last name, correct, Patty. I just want to make sure because sometimes, you know, <laughs> we hear things and we spell them many different ways. Um, yeah, very good. <laughs> and you said the website is Arkham.ai, right? Cor- correct. We'll be doing through a we'll be going through a to a rebrand and should be done with our new site um, sometime next week. I would ex- I, I would imagine. Well, before awesome. this goes up. Sure. Yeah, this will by by the time this goes out, it should be live. So awesome. Well, Sebastian, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Always a pleasure, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And Patty, James, always great talking to you guys. Have a great one. Thank you. You have a great one too, my friends. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field, with James Shepard. So um, as a industry coming up uh, company like myself, Alder Financial LLC, how would you, what would you suggest in terms of advice uh, about going about the, uh, the process of getting people, their applications, getting them approved for a plethora of uh, products, as sure. well as just going over their, um, their financial history and their bank statements? Yeah, so basically, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're primarily doing a merchant cash advance. Merchant cash advance. I'm really just doing like a full service. You know, I'm okay, really so you're doing, doing, you're doing merchant services as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm also doing merchant services. Yeah. Got it. So, I mean, I think the first thing I would point out here is there's a really, really big difference between um, prospecting and selling MCA versus selling merchant services. Um, yeah. Right. Like one of the reasons I'm really bullish on selling <clears throat> payment processing and other technology solutions versus selling MCA directly is that you can't really sell MCA per se. Like one out of every 40 to 60 businesses really could use a merchant cash advance. But the problem is if you pitch it to the other 59, they're going to be really upset that you pitched it to them. Like, absolutely. You know what I mean? So I've, I've always found that really challenging. It's funny. I actually had a uh, MCA company a long time ago and I had a sales rep who their job for like a month was like calling and selling merchant cash advance. And we did it for about a month. And I was like, you know, and I, I consider myself pretty good at sales. 
And yeah. I worked on the pitch and worked on the script. And at the end of the month, I'm like, no, we're never doing that again. So, yeah. so what I would say is, and, and the reason is because again, you know, we got a few deals, but it was like, everybody else was like, why are you pitching me this 30%, <laughs> you know, loan? You know? So yeah. what you I found stretch out the terms. Yeah. So, so what I found is well, I would say number one is as far as what you lead off with right now, the things I've seen that work really, really well is that you're leading off <clears throat> with either dual pricing with merchant services, or you're leading off with some kind of technology solution. Um, if it's a large enough company, you might be leading off with cost savings, not, not like reduced pricing per se, but like more like consulting, like I'm going to help you make sure that you you know, lower your cost of processing payments, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Interchange optimization or whatever. So <clears throat> that's the first thing I would say is, you know, when you're, when you're trying to get it all going, definitely start with one thing. You always have to have a beachhead. I just talked to one of my sales guys about this this morning that, you know, like our company, we sell a lot of different things to payment processing companies and it's tempting to try to sell all of it or try to sell the biggest thing yes. that you can sell. And what I found is it's actually a lot more effective and efficient to sell, like maybe not the smallest thing you can sell, but, but generally speaking, it's like, what's the easiest yes I can get so I can get some momentum and actually get a customer quickly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, then yeah, you come back and say, by the way, we offer forward. this and this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Building up that relationship is kind of tough too, because you get a lot of people that return customers in this industry. So if you're calling like cold leads, Yes. And you get someone that already has like two positions out of three or four positions out and they need a reverse consolidation and you actually have someone, it's hard to gain their trust. Yeah. Because um, like yeah. they don't know, they don't know who you are. They don't know like where you're coming from. You're right. not with, you know, you're not with, you know, some major conglomerate. You right. might even have lenders that are like an actual financial conglomerate, like a lot of people do, yep. but you're not actually, you know, you, you might be, you might have them as a partner, right. but they don't know you from yeah. that. So I will, I will tell you, cause let me give you a couple other thoughts about that. So one of the, one of the best ways I feel like if you really are trying to drum up MCA business, um, you need to think of it more as an educational process rather than a direct sales process per se. So like one of my favorite things is something I did a long time ago is write a book, like an ebook about, you know, merchant cash advance with a question mark or three keys to capitalizing your business with no credit. Yeah. Right. That kind of a title is going to grab their attention. Then write the ebook and talk about without getting too much into depth, but kind of talk about the mechanics of it. How does it work? What does it mean if you have to roll it over? What do I do if I ran out of money and I need another cash advance, but I haven't paid off the one that I have? How does that work? So I think writing a, like an ebook about that, making maybe even a couple of videos, you've got a nice setup right now. I mean, you know, making some videos yeah. or whatever, and then sharing that. And so now you're reaching out to people and saying, Hey, um, Something I've done for my local clients. We have a lot of clients with questions about merchant cash advance. How do they get capital? How do they structure it if they run out of money early? The only reason I'm calling you today is I wanted to send you my free ebook and the two videos that I made about this. Yeah. Right. Now they're going to be a lot more receptive Absolutely. to get that. Then you follow up. One thing I've noticed with a lot of clients is, especially like if you're if you're offering a little bit more, like uh, if you're offering like equipment financing, you know, and and like other like uh, not necessarily mercantile services. Right. I have some clients right now that actually want to refinance an SBA into a four into a four year business term loan just because the SBA term loan that the SBA terms like ten years. I mean, it's very it's very few and thin. Yeah, but I do have some clients that are even just trying to pack repackage into, into smaller terms. Right, and that's the thing with the merchant cash advance is realistically it, it, trying to push a like a three month thing is kind of hard. Yeah, uh, especially like a three month term, depending on like how much you're financing. Because right. if you're doing like 10 to 14K, it's right. okay. 
Right. Um, but realistically, a lot of people want like a lot of people want like you know half a year or you know nine right. months to actually be able to refinance and repay. Yeah. And and again, I think I think what's interesting about this conversation, I mean, there's the steak and there's the sizzle. We've been talking about the sizzle, which is how do we make this sound good? How do we sell it right? But the the steak exactly the, the steak piece of this is, I hate to be the one to say this, but I mean MCA is not dead, but it's dying. And the, reason, and the reason it's dying is very, very simple. MCA yeah. is based on a premise that we're going to l- lend money to people who are highly at risk of default. And yeah. we can't really understand all the variables. So we're going to charge them a lot. And we're going to share a lot of it with the person who signed them up. That is an outdated idea at its core, because now you have Bluevine, you have Cabbage, you have all of these others, you know, Pipe. You have, yeah, so, Fundera. Fundera. So, so now you have all of these competitors that are saying, well, wait a second, really? We can't figure this risk out. I think we can. Let's leverage AI. Let's leverage algorithms. We're repackaging it into working capital loans. Yes. And realistically, like a lot of people are trying to do like accounts receivable financing and invoice factoring, yep. which is kind of the same, but realistically with a lot of merchant cash advances, um, the only people I really, I really approve of like in my personal company um, I really fun through with merchant cash pants are like the serial entrepreneurs that are realistically just trying to pay for like four different companies out of pocket and they have low credit. Yeah. 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 So, it's just, it's I mean, not a great, like, you need something, I got that. it's just not a great fit for the average business. And it's like, you know, the, the, the one you mentioned of the, the 10 year SBA note wanting to refi into a four year, whatever. I mean, it's like, I mean, that's just stupid. I mean, I'm sorry, but like yeah. anybody with any business sense knows that's dumb. You're going to reduce your cash flow and you're going to accept the yeah. higher interest rate. It doesn't make any sense. So it's like, to me, I think, I think that's the, the big part of it. And that's, again, that's one of those reasons that in my mind, if somebody is going to reach out to me because I've educated them or because they're with me in another service and they're going to reach out to me and say, James, we really need some capital right now. I yeah. feel I'm going to sleep fine at night getting them on an MCA. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know that I feel great right now about going to market with MCA. Like, let me go convince people for an MCA. It's like, well, hold on. I mean, have you tried the SBA route? Have you talked to Fundira? Have you been to Cabbage? Do you understand Bluevine? So I feel like there's a little bit of even a moral obligation with that to kind of be like, well, wait a second, is this really the best option for you? Versus when you go to market selling a point of sale system, integrated software, um, dual pricing, whatever. To me, I feel great about that. And I can build a big portfolio. Then I can just educate people. Hey, by the way, I have capital available as well, if that's something that you need. And yes. then you have those conversations as they come. That's up. how I feel because like working as a direct lender is actually way harder than you would actually uh, anticipate. Yes. They always try to they always try to push in the industry. You need like hundred um, k capital to actually start uh, your own finance your own right. financial services. And like as of right now, I'm just brokering. I'm just brokering uh, deals. Right. And, like I'm doing. I can do direct lending if it's like below twenty k. I can do direct lending. Right. Right. But if it's over 20k, I realistically I just don't, just I don't have the capital, nor nor do I have like the attorney right. to actually work out the contract. And and I mean, let's let's you know be honest about that too. I mean, when you talk about direct lending of your own capital, a hundred thousand dollars, I mean, you might as well go to the roulette table. Yeah. What I mean by that is, yeah. Yeah. some of you know, if let's say let's say one That's out the of industry, yeah, let's say one out of ten, which is very conservative. Let's say one out of ten is going to default. And yep. you lend money to three. 
you have actually really good odds that one of those three is going to default wiping out a third of the capital that you have put out. Like these businesses only work at scale. What I think is a much more realistic um, approach is to do things. You know, there's a lot of different programs that you can get with the MCA companies where they'll actually let you buy into a small piece. Sure. You're familiar with this. You can buy into a small piece of each loan that they do where you own 5% of the loans that you have put out there in the field. And then yeah. you're not only getting your commission, but you're also getting, you know, a return on that actual money. Getting return, and they also, they're, well, they're offering a higher commission as well. Exactly. If you're, yeah. If, if you're, if you're putting in, you know what I mean? If you're putting in your, your own financial leveraging for that person to repay, um, realistically, they'll, they'll give you like, that's the, that's what the industry is actually pushing a lot right now mm-hmm. is like commission rates. Well, we're offering uh, two, we're offering 2.5. We're also, we're offering three. And um, I mean, you do have some people that do definitely need MCAs. Like some people were like, I yeah, want to cover, I want to cover payroll. Right. I have a new office that I'm expanding into. Right. And, they, have, and, they, and there's a, there's an urgency to it. Yeah. For me, that's one of the big things is it about the urgency. It's like, you know, I get, like one of my favorite examples, there was a guy who he had a fire in his uh, pizza shop, one of my clients, and yeah. he had to get another pizza oven. It, it ruined his pizza oven. It, ironically, they were able to get the rest of everything was, was okay, but it, the fire just destroyed his pizza oven. And yeah. he's like, look, I have insurance. They're going to cover this cost, but I have to go get a pizza oven like tomorrow or the next day, or I'm like, out of business. I need this wire to my account right now. Yes. And that was fine. We did, I think it was a $15,000 MCA. He went and got what he needed, got it installed very quickly. Then the insurance money came in and he was able, you know what I mean? That's where yeah, you need to work it out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah, know, you, get a lot of like you get a lot of, a lot of like miscellaneous needs. Uh, right. People don't want to go through what the thing about the equipment financing is people love it only if you're doing like construction and like cranes and like bulldozers and stuff, or right. if you're doing farming equipment, like harvesters, because at the end of the, at the end of the repayment, they'll write it off as a tax return. Or they'll, yeah, they'll actually write it off as a tax write-off. Right. So um, yeah. they really love that. And, they, and uh, if, if you're doing like other stuff, like the business term loan, it goes like the, 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 the Bureau for Credit Reporting and stuff. So people get the basically invoice back to that into their taxes and so on. Yeah. So forth. Yeah. And, and, and I, think, I think at the end of the day, everything you're describing, it's like these are all issues that are fairly complex for a yeah. merchant to understand. And so whenever I'm trying to sell something that is – complex in nature, um, which I mean, a good example is what we're doing right now. As far as for my business, I'm, yeah. I sell ISOs on stuff that's yeah. really complicated. And, you know, to me, it's about education. And so I always am thinking more in terms of that. I'll give you one other really good example of this. Um, one of my absolute favorite things to do is to create a podcast. I've helped a lot of people do this where it's like nowadays, I mean, my goodness, you can get, I mean, the setup I have right here, I mean, this microphone and I've got some other nice equipment here, but I mean, you know, it's not that expensive. You can do a nice podcast for 500 bucks. You can get the equipment you need to make something sound good. And if you have a topic like, you know, small business capital, well, I don't know, maybe I'm sure there already is one, but the small business capital podcast would be fantastic. That's a great lead source. Exactly. Every every episode you do could be with a small business owner that you're interviewing or with uh, an expert in the industry. And, you know, so to me, things like that, I, I always try to think more in terms of let's become like the media company that's going to educate people about this topic. And if you run that model for six months, you're going to start getting a steady flow of leads. And those are going to be very well qualified and very interested in what you're selling. Yeah, I actually, I've seen a lot of your content. I like the way you're positioning yourself within the industry as more of like a, as like an educator, as well as you actually offer your own services. 
Yeah. Um, because a lot of a lot of what owning and being the CEO of a company is is creating a lot of content. Because nowadays you can, I mean, especially with what you were saying about the podcast and everything. Because nowadays you can have like with with social media and everything that's going on with social media and everything that has been going on, you can hire like everyone's doing it now. So now you can have like interns that'll come in and they'll they'll help you out. They'll they'll set right. you up. They'll offer you like advice just right. because you got, you got younger generation coming up through it. You know, they're actually. I mean, I've got a I've got a room on the, on the other side of this wall here. I have a room of four full time people who are all in their twenties that yeah. are you know on the creative team that do the video editing that brainstorm with me about you know like we're just about to launch our TikTok uh, strategy and it's Very like cool. I don't use TikTok. Come on, I'm yeah. almost forty years That's old. You know? But you know they're helping me and and we're going to put out a bunch of stuff on how to sell payment processing on on TikTok. So, um, well. Uh, this has been fantastic. This is a, a really good conversation. Let's follow up again sometime soon and talk some more. But yeah, I think this is very helpful. I think the big takeaways are if you're out there selling something that's complicated, educate. Yep. Lead off with one thing. You got to pick the thing you can sell and then go sell it. And then build that portfolio through your education, build those relationships, and then you can sell more stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, good stuff, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, James. You have a good one. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. You know, James, this week I want to speak about uh, tokenization. Okay. Yeah, this is one of those perennial security methods that uh, has found a niche in securing online and mobile payments. Yep. You know, I mean, I go back to the, even talking, I remember writing about tokenization in the 1980s. So, I mean, that's how old yeah. the technology is, but it's matured and evolved over the years. Yep. And uh, something came across my desk recently that really kind of blew my mind that Visa says it has now issued more than 4 billion network tokens worldwide. Uh, through its Visa token service, which is nearly double the number reported in 2021. And this is the really interesting thing. It's more than the total number of Visa plastic cards in circulation. Hmm. Um, Now, it says it has about 8,600 issuers and 800,000 merchants worldwide that are using the service. And that analysis shows... um, uh, tokenization used by merchants has led to a 28% reduction in fraud and a 3% increase in approval rates, which, of course, you know, drive improvements to merchants and, and agents and ISO's bottom lines. You know, like I said, tokenization has been around for in the card world for a long time, probably in the card world for about 20 years. Um, and can you, big in the, could, could you maybe zoom out for just a second for those in our audience that maybe sure, are new sure. to the industry? What what is tokenization and give it give us the broader well, kind of yeah, definition me, and how it differs from just a pure plastic card? Like give us a little bit more context on that. Yeah, and I think this is probably the best way to do it in, in the context of cards. Okay, so in in the context of cards, tokenization replaces that sixteen digit number with a unique al- algorithmically generated digital identifier. That's okay. the token. Right. Okay. So I have my card in it, you know, one, two, three, four, you know, whatever, you know, 16 digits of of, of numerals that gets replaced by a, you know, a one B2, you know, that's its token. That's its identifier. Right. Um, It only works. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Now, I was going to say, like, as an example, would it would it be an example of tokenization? So, for instance, our company, someone puts a card on file in our software. We then can mm-hmm. we then have that tokenized and stored so that later on we can go back and charge it again. So we generated a token right for that without card. having to actually retrieve that number. Well, we don't we don't have to Very have them like swipe or give us the card information every month. We've tokenized it, and now we can gain access to that unique identifier. Exactly. And and then that's really where it gets used the most is with these kind of digital services and cards on file kind of situations. Um, you know, because what happens then is that if the token gets stolen, it's useless. Um, right. So, you know, therefore you can, you know, it, just, it makes the digital digital commerce a little bit more secure than it was Absolutely. Yeah, much, much more, right? So, so it's like if you, if somebody grabbed in the example I gave a minute ago, if somebody was to hack into our system, we don't have any card numbers in our system. We have these tokens, right? Well, they can steal those tokens all they want, but we have the, it's, it's, it's encrypted on both sides. Right. And so it's not like you, you can't just like walk into your local convenience store or call to order pizza and give them an, give them a, give them know, your a token. token. Right. It's not going right. to get you any pizza. You have right. to have the actual card number, which we don't have in our system. Therefore, it removes that liability from us. And we're not in that PCI scope because we right. don't have the card number on file. Yeah. And it can get a little more sophisticated, obviously, as you're in more sophisticated kind of business lines. But that's right. basically what it is. The other thing, too, about tokenization is that it eliminates the friction in the payments process because there's no need to manually update the, that card information. You have those cards right. on file. Right. One expires. It's okay, you know. Um, you know, B of A just automatically replaces yep. that card, you know, against the token. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, just automatically, you know, updates it and and credentials with the associated tokens. Um, so here's how the issuance goes, just for so people can understand this. So consumers, for example, registers their card number, uh, security code and the other account information with a digital payment service, you know, like say your, your online service. Right. Okay, the service then asks Visa for a payment token for that account, for that registered account. Uh, Visa then reaches out to the card issuer, says, is this okay for us to issue a token to, you know, Patty Murphy for use with James Shepard? Yes, it's okay. So then Visa replaces the card number with the token, sends it to you, and yep. we go on our merry ways. Yep. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that it can be used for both online and mobile NFC type payments. It can also be restricted to a particular mobile device, a particular e-commerce merchant, or another example is a limited number of purchases before it expires. Right. So here's the, you know, the transaction flow. I initiate the payment. Um, the merchant sends the token and transaction details to the acquirer or the processor. The acquirer then forwards that information to Visa, which sends it on to the card issuer. The issuer either accepts or declines, you know, much as they would in a typical transaction, um, sends the response to Visa, and the token and payment authorization are forwarded to the acquirer, and the transaction gets completed. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and you know, I, I think. Uh... This would probably be a great time for us to talk about our sponsor. Um, uh, and that's a perfect time, don't you think? <laughs> so NMI.com, like one of the things for those who are maybe new in the industry don't understand, I mean, one of the main functions that the gateway serves mm-hmm. is this idea of tokenization. 
Right. So, you know, with uh, NMI, they have their vault. So when I was giving the example of our company where we have people go on and they'll do our training subscriptions or our mm-hmm. statement analysis service, we have all of our software tied into NMI. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody puts a card on file, we actually use their API so right. that when they're putting their card information on our website, it actually isn't even touching our server ever. Right. It's going directly to NMI. Yeah. NMI does the heavy lifting of communicating with the card brand to say, hey, you know, CC Sales Pro wants to store this card. Can you give us a token? Right. And they get the token. Then they uh, store it in what they call their secure vault. Right. And so it's like a digital vault that, that they have all these things. And then they send back to us this, this token and say, okay, now anytime you send us that with our API authentication and all of that together, they will respond and say, okay, this is a, you do have this card on file right? Or you have the next card after that one expired because they mm-hmm. automatically replace it. And it's like, okay, what do you want to do with this information? It's like, well, we want to charge them a thousand dollars. thousand dollars, right. They pay us a thousand dollars a month. Okay, great. Well, then they run that for a thousand. So yeah, so they, you know, NMI.com has really been a pioneer in this because it's very challenging. It's very complicated to build out. Right. And they're building it out for the, you know, as a processor agnostic solution so that's why a lot of the ISOs and big processors and acquirers and everybody else, even Payfax, like that's why a lot of them use NMI because building that tech stack is like ridiculously complicated and expensive. And expensive. Yeah. And, and they already have it. So yeah. I think that's really important. So that's NMI.com, which is uh, our sponsor for the podcast. So it was great to be able to kind of throw them in with your insiders today, Patty. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, one of the things just to say about this is that as more transactions move online and the mobile devices, we're going to see a lot more um, demand for tokenization, and I think that the you know these numbers from Visa, you know, suggest that it's already coming to fruition. Yeah, good stuff, Patty. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's a good, it's an interesting trend, but I also think it's. I'm glad you brought it up because I think a lot of people in the industry don't even really know what that is. No, so I, that, I, you know, that's a really good be, little education piece. Yeah, and to be honest, one of the things I love about my job is that I get to educate myself. Yeah. while I'm educating other people because yeah. I did not realize that this technology had evolved that efficiently and that significantly yeah. Yeah. Um, in the card world. So. Yeah, love it. Great stuff, Patty. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.